A few years ago, my parents graciously took our entire family to the Grand Canyon. Stacy and the kids and I had never been. We had never seen it. Something else we had never done was pursue the highly coveted Junior Ranger badge that aspiring young naturalists like our daughter Abigail can earn at a national park. And to earn the Junior Ranger badge at the Grand Canyon... One of the requirements includes attending a certain number of ranger presentations where real-life park rangers shared and taught what they knew about the park. So to help Abby earn her junior ranger badge, we all attended a late-night presentation at the edge of the canyon. After the presentation, the park ranger answered questions from the small crowd, and one aspiring junior ranger shot her hand up and asked, What is your favorite part of being a park ranger at the Grand Canyon? Without much thought, he answered back, nighttime, this, right now. And he said, don't get me wrong, I love seeing the canyon, it's beautiful to behold during the day, but there is something about being at the rim of the canyon at nighttime that is so powerful, especially on a cloudy night when there is no moon or stars. I know it's there but I can't see it. At night, no matter what you may have seen during the day, the canyon is an endless abyss. None of your senses can confirm that it's there. There's nothing in the canyon that gives off light, nothing to let you know what lurks in the dark. You stand on the edge of the abyss and are humbled because something inside you tells you that this massive unknown is right in front of you. For the last six weeks, we've been following the journey of Jerusalem, a journey of wonder, grief, and hope. And as we entered the grieving part of that journey, both Dinah and Ryan taught us about some of the unhealthy ways that we deal with change and loss, some of the toxic ways we approach or stand on the edge of the abyss. Dinah reminded us that in our denial and nostalgia, we try to act like the abyss doesn't even exist. We run away from it. We convince ourselves that nothing is changing and that we are not standing on the edge of a massive unknown. She also helped us see how our anger can be toxic as well, causing us to look for people to blame or ways to steal ourselves away from the possibility of change. Last week, Ryan encouraged us to recognize that the abyss is not to be avoided. That as followers of Yeshua, we are actually called to expect and accept that change will come. And when it does, we are invited to name and mourn the things that we have lost, to lay down the expectations and ideas that can go with us no longer, and to humbly acknowledge that the massive unknown is right in front of us. Here today we may find ourselves considering or facing an abyss in our personal lives. The loss of a loved one. The end of a relationship. Great change and uncertainty at home, at work, or at school. We may be considering the abyss that faces this church. The community of Alamo Heights United Methodist. Shrinking congregations and budget shortfalls. All that we have lost and all that we are faced with setting down. 
Or we may be wrestling with the uncertain and humbling abyss that faces Christendom as our faith loses the accepted authoritative position and voice it has held for so long in our culture and moves into much less certain waters. The truth is, we may be facing more than one abyss in our life. Whatever the case may be, the voice of Jeremiah and the story of the people of Jerusalem calls out to us from the past. Our foremothers and forefathers have left trail markers of their journey. This is the testimony of a people who could not escape or deny the massive unknown as their holy city was sacked. Their temple, the residence of God, was destroyed. Their survivors, the ones that aren't being killed, are being carted off into exile and assimilation. Their entire reality, ethnic identity, nationality, religion, land, and sustenance is burning down around them. Jeremiah, the prophet who has been begging the people to face this coming abyss for 40 years, is in prison. It's from the precipice of that abyss that we listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that gives hope from the 32nd and 33rd chapters of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, God's message came to me like this. Prepare yourself. Hanamel, your uncle Shalom's son, is on his way to see you. He's going to say, buy my field in Anatoth. You have the legal right to buy it. And sure enough, just as God had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me while I was in jail and said, buy my field in Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin. For you have the legal right to keep it in the family. Buy it. Take it over. That did it. I knew it was God's message. So I bought the field at Anatoth from my cousin Hannibal. I paid him 17 silver shekels. I followed all the proper procedures in the presence of witnesses. I wrote out the bill of sale, sealed it, and weighed out the money on the scales. Then I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy that contained the contract and its conditions, and also the open copy, and gave them to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Masiah. All this took place in the presence of my cousin Hannibal and the witnesses who had signed the deed as the Jews who were at the jail that day looked on. Yes, this is God's message. Fields are going to be bought here again. Yes, in this very country that you assume is going to end up desolate, gone to the dogs, unlivable, wrecked by the Babylonians. Yes. People will buy farms again, and legally, with deeds of purchase, sealed documents, proper witnesses, and right here in the territory of Benjamin, and in the area around Jerusalem, around the villages of Judah, and the hill country, the Shephelah, and the Negev, I will restore everything that was lost. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, that is a good chunk of scripture with a great amount of detail, a lot of specific names, places, and images. Before we dive into why all the specific details are included, I don't want us to miss the strangeness of what happens at the beginning of this story. Imagine, if you will, that you are Jeremiah. You are literally in prison, in the prison of a city that is being sacked. Any residents of that city that aren't being killed are being carted off to Babylonia. You're wondering 
what exactly is going to become of you? And then you receive a message like this from God that sounds like this. Hey, Jeremiah, your cousin is on his way to see you. He wants to sell some family land, a plot not too far from this prison that you're in, just north of the city that's burning to the ground. You should totally buy it. How would you respond? Would you do that? Would you think that that was a smart and logical way forward? If that sounds crazy to you, don't worry, because it is crazy. Walter Brueggemann says, this hope for a future contradicts the evidence on the ground. The New Interpreter's Bible says it this way. Neither the general circumstances of Jerusalem, besieged by a powerful army, nor the particular circumstances of Jeremiah, imprisoned in Jerusalem, provide a sound basis for the act of purchasing land for future use. There is nothing in the present situation that would precipitate investing in the future. Siege, defeat, and exile are the present realities. To the people that witnessed this transaction, Jeremiah buying this piece of land, this had to seem utterly ridiculous. And that's the first idea I think we need to hear today. To have this hope. To have this hope makes no sense. Jewish theologian Emil Fackenheim calls this illogical hope midrashic stubbornness. A midrash is a word that we throw around here a lot. It's the Hebraic word for interpretation. It's the communal act of wrestling with the story, engaging it, knowing it, and experiencing it. So when Emil Fackenheim declares midrashic stubbornness, he is saying that by really wrestling with the story of God, listening to it, dialoguing about it, arguing about it, living it, we actually develop a stubborn faith. We learn to move forward even when it doesn't make any sense. Especially when it doesn't make any sense. That is when Minrashic stubbornness is needed the most. When it doesn't make any sense. Like when we're asked to complete a land deal from our prison cell to acquire land near a city that is under siege. To have this hope makes no sense. The second idea that I think Jeremiah and our forebears declare from the precipice of their abyss is that senseless hope is walked out in sensible ways. The story we just heard is a ridiculously detailed and tedious description of a land purchase. Jeremiah does what would normally be considered a series of ordinary acts. He buys some land in order to keep it in the family. He gets witnesses. He records the deed in duplicate. He files the deed of sale, making sure that everything is legal and official. This is essentially a detailed description of Jeremiah getting to the title company while the city is being sieged. And that transaction is also followed by very specific visions of a quite ordinary future. People will buy farms again. People will record deeds again. There will be weddings and barbecues here again. These are not extravagant visions. These are daily, doable declarations of ordinary life. 
So often in times of great crisis and suffering, I tend to long for and look for spectacular signs and miraculous salvations. And while I would never tell you that God is not capable of the spectacular or miraculous, I can tell you that that is not typically my experience. My experience of God thus far has been largely inhabited by the daily doable declarations of the ordinary, putting one foot in front of the other. And the story that we heard from Jeremiah seems to agree. This is not the story of Jeremiah's chains being magically dissolved so he can climb up to the top of the temple, lift up his arms, and rain down a supernatural smiting of the Lord on the Babylonians. This is a strangely specific account of how a senseless hope is walked out in sensible ways. This hope is not gold dust and magic. This is not blindly believing that all will be well or hoping for an escape to some other existence. This is reality. This is tangible and pragmatic. This is methodical, logical, and concrete. This is doing the next right thing right now. To have this hope may not make sense, but practicing it, living into it, makes perfect sense. Because senseless hope is walked out in sensible ways. And it's in those sensible steps, putting one foot in front of the other, that we are invited to the most humbling truth declared from the precipice of this massive unknown that faced the people of Jerusalem. We stand on the edge, our senses failing us, no logical hope to cling to, and if we will listen, we will hear their voices telling us, God is in the abyss. Our mourning is not isolated. Our exile is not ours alone. Our pain and affliction are felt by a God who got there first. We are not the first ones to step off of dry land out into the sea. We are not the first ones into the abyss. God is. God got there first. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes that Israel's distress was more than a human tragedy. With Israel's distress came the affliction of God, God's displacement, God's homelessness in the land and in the world. God is mourning God's self. We aren't exiled alone. Our God goes with us. Our God goes before us. As Walter Brueggemann notes, the book of Jeremiah knows that at the bottom of the abyss, there lingers the Lord of creation and the lover of Israel. God is in the abyss. But we can't hear that truth if we don't acknowledge and face the massive unknown. We can't awaken to that presence unless we wrestle and strengthen our midrashic stubbornness. We can't practice such senseless hope unless we sensibly and concretely 
Put one foot in front of the other. Make no mistake, the voice of Jeremiah speaks to us. There is no tiptoeing over the harsh realities that we face. We are in prison. The present terror cannot be bypassed. Our city is besieged. The abyss cannot be avoided. But our forebears, the faithful remnant that was carried into exile, calls out to us too. The voice of the stubbornly hopeful, those who left dry land and walked into the abyss, declare that God dwells there. They testify to a divine force that holds suffering and hope in tension to one another. They point to a loving parent that declares that the end and the beginning are not mutually exclusive. The name of the holy city, Jerusalem, is actually Yerushalom, which in Hebrew translates to city of peace. But as Alexander Shia points out, the peace of Shalom is complex, differing greatly from our normal English sense of the word. In Hebrew, Shalom comes from a root word that means wholeness. Thus, in the Hebraic way of thinking, Shalom is the joining of opposites. That's the reason that Shalom is used both to say hello and goodbye. Times that contain both beginning and end. Coming and going. Goodbye and hello. Suffering and hope. A world that is ending and a world that's beginning. The dry land and the unknown sea. I'd like to put you in the shoes of my Irish niece, Marlene McCormick, standing on a cliff edge on the western coast of Spain, overlooking the broad Atlantic, 23 years old. She's just walked 500 miles from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port on the French side of the Pyrenees, all the way across northern Spain on this very famous old and contemporary pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the path to Santiago of Compostela. And when you get to, when you get to uh, Santiago, actually, it can be something of an anticlimax because there are 100,000 people living there who are not necessarily applauding you as you're coming into town. You know? And 10,000 of them are trying to sell you a memento of your journey. You know? But you do have the possibility of going on for three more days to this place where Marlene stood, called in Spanish Finisterre, in English Finisterre, from the Latin meaning the ends of the earth, the place where ground turns to ocean, the place where your present turns into the future. And Marlene had walked this way. She just graduated as a 23-year-old from the University of Sligo with a degree in Irish drama. And she said to me, I don't think the major corporations of the world will be knocking on my door. I said, listen, I've worked in corporations all over the world for decades. A degree in drama is what would most prepare you for the adult <laughs> corporate world. But she said, I'm not interested in that anyway. 
I, want, I don't want to teach drama. I want to become a dramatist. I want to write plays. So I walked the Camino in order to give myself some courage, in order to walk into my future. And I said, what was the most powerful moment you had on the whole Camino, the very most powerful moment? And she said, I had many powerful moments, but you know, the most powerful moment was post-Camino, was the three days you go on from Santiago and come to this cliff edge. And you go through three rituals. The first ritual is to eat a tapas plate of scallops. Yeah. Or if you're a vegetarian, to contemplate the scallop shell. Yeah. <laughs> because the scallop shell has been the icon and badge of your walk. And every arrow that you have seen along that way has been pointing underneath a scallop shell. Yeah. So really, this first ritual is saying, how did you get to this place? How did you follow the path to get here? How do you hold the conversation of life when you feel unbesieged, when you're unbullied, when you're left yourself? How do you hold the conversation of, of life that brings you to this place? Yeah. And the second ritual is that you burn something that you've brought. I said, what did you burn, Marlene? She said, I, I burned a letter and two postcards. I said, astonishing, 23 years old and you have paper. I can't believe it, you know. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Camino app where you can just delete a traumatic text, you know, and it will engage the flashlight, imbue it with color, and disappear in a, in a firework of flames, you know. But you burn, you either bring a letter or you write one there and you burn it. And of course, we know intuitively what's on the, what is on those letters and postcards. It's a form of affection and love that is now no longer extant, yeah. And then the third ritual, between all these fires are large piles of clothes and you leave an item of clothing that has helped you to get to this place. And I said to Marlene, what did you leave at the cliff edge? She said, I left my boots, the very things that I walked in actually. They were beautiful boots, I loved those boots, but they were finished after seven weeks of walking. So I walked away in my trainers, but I left my boots there. She said it was really incredible. The most powerful moment was the sun was going down, but the full moon was coming up behind me. And the full moon was illuminated by the dying sun in such a powerful way that even after the sun had dropped below the horizon, the moon could still see that sun. And I had a moon shadow. And I was looking at my moon shadow, walking across the Atlantic, across this ocean. And I thought, oh, that's my new self going into the future. But suddenly I realized the sun was falling further. The moon was losing its reflection and my shadow was disappearing. The most powerful moment I had on the whole Camino was when I realized I myself had to walk across that unknown sea into my future. While I was so taken by this story, I wrote this piece for her. We were driving at the time we got home. I sat on the couch. I wrote. I wrote until two in the morning. Everyone had gone to bed. And I gave it to Marlene at breakfast time. And it's called Finister for Marlene McCormick. Yeah. The road in the end, the road in the end, taking the path the sun had taken, the road in the end, taking the path that sun, the sun had taken into 
the Western Sea. The road in the end, taking the path the sun had taken into the Western Sea. And the moon, the moon rising behind you as you stood where ground turned to ocean. No way to your future now, no way to your future now except the way your shadow could take walking before you across water, going where shadows go. No way to make sense of a world that wouldn't let you pass except to call an end to the way you had come. To take out each letter you had brought and light their illumined corners and to read them as they drifted on the late western light. To empty your bags, to empty your bags, to sort this and to leave that, to sort this and to leave that, to promise what you needed to promise all along, to promise what you needed to promise all along, and to abandon the shoes that brought you here right at the water's edge, not because you had given up, not because you had given up, but because now you would find a different way to tread. And because through it all, part of you would still walk on, no matter how, over the waves. Now as those who face the abyss with a hope beyond explanation, let us come to the table of our risen Savior and Rabbi, Yeshua, in a daily doable declaration of ordinary life. Invite you to refer to the communion liturgy that you were handed when you came in. If you don't have one, don't worry, we'll put the words up on the screen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, who sanctifies us with your commandments and has commanded us to remember. We come to remember. We come to continue the journey. We come to re enter the story, to explore our questions, to uncover our doubts to face our nagging need. We come to heed the words of Jeremiah and the voice of Jerusalem, those who faced the massive unknown with faith that made no sense and lies that stubbornly and sensibly stepped forward in hope. We come to re-enter the story, to hold our suffering and our hope together, a hope and posture modeled by Jesus when he broke bread with the twelve disciples on the night that he would be betrayed, offering us a path and an assurance that God dwells in the abyss. Take and eat my body given for you. Take and drink a new covenant in my blood. We stand where ground turns to ocean. No way to our future now, except the way our shadows can take, walking across water, going where shadows go. No way to make sense of a world that wouldn't let us pass except to call an end to the way we have come. We abandon the shoes that brought us to the water's edge. We empty our bags. We sort this and leave that. We drink and eat. In this food, we hope without sense. In this drink, we move forward. We put one foot in front of the other. With this bread that we break and eat, the path of Christ is our hope. With this wine that we pour and drink, the path of the Christ is our hope.
We never face the massive unknown alone. Our God dwells in the abyss. Our rabbi and our forebears have gone before us. And with each step, we are drawn more and more into the community of our God and the cloud of witnesses that have whispered to us this morning. As you come to the table this morning, you're invited to serve one another across the table. As you approach from the opposite side of one of your brothers or sisters, break off a piece of bread and hand it to them. Next, offer them the cup into which they can dip the bread and eat it. Then switch rolls and repeat the process. You don't have to say anything as you serve each other, but you are certainly welcome to say whatever the Spirit is leading you to say about the body and the blood of Christ. As Dinah always reminds us when we do this, we can't mess this up. Should you desire prayer or anointing, a pastor and some of our prayer volunteers will be available back here under the crosses. And I would just remind you that this is the open table of the living Christ. It offers hope to anyone who is willing to come. Come.